I think two hypotheticals are worth exploring. And they kind of, uh, they're, they run on parallel tracks. Uh, and I think they both try to address the same concern. And I'll, I'll make this uh, easy, simple and easy and fairly short. The, the first path, assuming that the region stays the same. Uh, whether it's Iran today, whether it's Syria tomorrow, whether it's Saudi Arabia and Iran, Israel and Iran, Saudi Arabia and other countries, Israel and other countries, whether it's the Iranian regime re-entrenching itself uh, in a more security-enhanced atmosphere, perhaps less theocratic, but nonetheless still holding on to its military dictatorship uh, capabilities. And things in the region just deteriorate. Iraq remains a proxy battlefield, primarily under Iran's domain. Uh, Assad could re-emerge across Syria. He could re-establish full control over Syria. And uh, Syria returns to the way it was, uh, with a more brutal uh, recent past. In other words, the region is complicated, and it stays complicated, and it's violent, and it doesn't change for the better. Reformers in Lebanon, do they have wiggle space to actually produce change? And I think the answer is yes, they have wiggle space uh, for change that abides to a security climate in this country not wiggle space for fundamental reform, wiggle space for change. And unfortunately, that's my new change. Now, let's go on the other side. Uh, the region improves. The region stabilizes, not in a way that's favorable for autocrats or dictators or theocrats or whatever. Democratic tendencies produce healthier societies. And let's say the Iranian regime, as we understand it today, turns into something better for Iran and the region. Let's say Saudi Arabia projects into the future is no longer this vicious instrument for clamp down and, 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 and rule, but rather it's a more open society that's adopting more democratic principles. It's hard to imagine. Uh, the Emirates evolves for the better. Not this authoritarian-like uh, dream palace for luxury and wealth, but rather a healthy democracy. A healthy democracy that really appreciates the attitudes of the locals and it lets anyone who's been there for decades really feel like they belong to that society. Not oil-driven madness. Let's say Arab-Israeli peace happens, not just among Gulf countries and Israel, but let's say Palestinian-Israeli peace is possible. Uh, a reconfiguration of the region where people are better. Less violence and economics-driven discourse without the fear of political violence. I think Lebanon would flourish. So, you have these two options. A hard cosmetic change or a flourishing reform movement that excels. I think that is true. I think reform in Lebanon, the capabilities depend on 
regional regional uh, tendencies working in favor for Lebanese stability, not on security terms, but rather about fundamental reform, independence, and destiny, reclaiming destiny that was lost decades ago. Both paths uh, are unlikely, meaning reformists will not be able to do big change if the region stays the same, and if the region changes, it's, it's not in our lifetime. Or we can't bet on it. We can't actually bet that things will change tomorrow. Even when there's protests in Iran, even when Saudi Arabia is changing fundamentally, even when certain countries are making peace with Israel, you can't, uh, you can't bet on that. And you could simply wait and see what happens. But that's what's happened to at least three generations in modern Lebanese history. So both paths are not they're not the paths I think uh, strategists or policymakers should look at in order to see Lebanon in a way that makes sense to them. Um, and I think that kind of uh, logic is where a lot of well-intentioned uh, individuals, whether from various embassies in this country, UN agencies, NGOs, uh, relations to other civil societies. I mean, these NGOs that have workshops across the spectrum and they send Lebanese to Europe or wherever, to the States sometimes, to do training and whatever. I think uh, they unfortunately look at the first road as the only road and they completely uh, abandon the second road, which is hopeless in itself, but they haven't thought of a third road. A third road that I think depends on Lebanese expressing, expressing their desire, expressing their concern, but not on a local level, on a national level. That hasn't happened anytime recently, and it used to happen. When diplomats write articles in Lorient today, and these are friends, I mean, part of my, part of my job, if you will, is to communicate regularly with anyone that is trying to see Lebanon and trying to push things forward in a better way. I think this article that came out in Lorient today, yesterday, uh, authored by EU member states, heads of mission, sorry, residents in Beirut, and various ambassadors, European ambassadors, but primarily authored by the European Union ambassadors. Lebanon was a friend of mine, Ralph Tadroff. Now, I've gotten to know this man uh, on a personal level. I've been lucky enough, he's invited me to private occasions. Um, I think he's a, he's a wonderful person, and he's somebody that, gives, that can have an honest exchange with uh, no emotions and no temper. On the contrary, it's almost like the diplomat, the, the, the proper diplomat uh, for that kind of position. He thinks, he suggests, but he doesn't dictate. And he sees principles that he's come to, he's actually come to certain conclusions, 
that I think are flat out wrong. Um, I I appreciate that he cannot, or these multiple authors cannot list names. I appreciate that they cannot make it personal with either individuals or groups. This whole article doesn't name anyone, or for that matter, any group. So, uh, I know that that is with absolute caution and care so that the message is as wide as possible and thin to a point that it should be a universal message. Okay. Can't do that when you're trying to describe the fundamental problem of Lebanon. And in a way, it almost seemed like it was, uh, it's like a political uh, addendum to the World Bank report that came out, uh, the Ponzi scheme World Bank report several weeks ago or several months ago, which in itself was, you know, overtly ignoring this huge problem in Lebanon. And uh, they made it clear that this is not beyond the scope of the policy recommendations and analysis. And I think this open letter, or this opinion letter, sorry, the time to act is now, um, I think is a soft political sort of attachment to that kind of, that kind of paper. And this is what I'm trying to explain. So I'll give you an example, sort of uh, several paragraphs in, I think it's the third paragraph. We realize that the tasks at hand are daunting, and the context does not render the tasks easier. A, f uh, a polarized regional and international geopolitical environment, a frail national consensus on the most basic strategic questions. No, that's just wrong. A polarized regional and international geopolitical environment, and a frail national consensus on the most basic strategic questions. What the hell does that even mean? You know, we don't have uh, multiple proxy armies battling it out on the streets of Beirut. We don't have uh, a Saudi military base in North Beirut monitoring South Beirut. We don't have a security entanglement that even comes near what Iran has built in Lebanon. It's their crown jewel. It's something, we'll get to this later, it's something that's more important to them than nuclear weapons. There is nothing that compares. In the old days, there was something that did compare, actually had more leverage. It was the Assad regime in Lebanon. But that's history. Even when it tries to come back, even when it still has allies, even when it uh, maybe, maybe uh, takes advantage of moments of despair and their old friends look like heroes to ill-advised analysts and diplomats. I mean, Jamid Sayed is not an opposition figure, even when he's sometimes referred to one. Even in publications like the New York Times, he's not an opposition figure. I mean, sorry, this man is not opposition. Uh, he represents, in my mind, the worst years of Syrian hegemony in Lebanon. So you have that kind of momentum, and you have you know, the likes of Suleiman Frangi, who's looking for influence. 
those are serious friends, maybe, maybe trying to navigate Assad and Iran in Lebanon. That, that is probably the second most important security uh, concern in Lebanon. I think that's where Hezbollah focuses its energy, trying to look at real strategic threats, not Saudi media investment with the Lebanese forces. I mean, the biggest bullshit coming from particular analysts in Lebanon is that that is as important as Hezbollah. One, when you talk about sovereignty, you have to talk about not just what Hezbollah has done, but what the Saudi regime does with, with its relations with particular parties pre-elections. Yes, both are bad. Uh, if you really stretch them both to their absolute limits. But that's not reality. That's just, uh, that's both false equivalence and a misreading. Misreading of what's happened. And I think the absolute stretching, the thinness, is what allows an article like this to get uh, published. It's stretching things to their limit. A fragmented, a fragmented political system in which the principle of separation of powers is hardly respected and which lacks transparency and accountability. Okay. The rest of the article talks about these kinds of things and why the IMF uh, deal hasn't happened and putting pressure on the Lebanese government to adopt certain reforms and staff-level agreement measures to get an IMF deal done with. Yes, these are all correct. It's not like the article is, is the details are not, the details are there and they're fact, as was the World Bank report. The details, the details are correct. The numbers are correct. The analysis in itself, if you remove it from the political atmosphere and political consequences, yeah, this is, this is true. Reform measures need to be taken. Yeah, so you can't really argue with that. But the question then needs to be explored carefully. Why these reform measures are not taken? And I think because of, because maybe, maybe when, when enough people that once explained this effectively through different spheres of influence, whether it was through intelligentsia and journalism, whether it was through security and intelligence, not foreign intelligence, local intelligence, whether it was shining stars that were, I mean, in their early 20s that were doing a better job than the tribunal when it came to investigation. Uh, diplomats, old-fashioned politicians that sort of became more confident and trying to move things forward. Politicians that were once part of the problem, but were willing to risk everything to detach themselves and this country from that problem. They've all been killed. All of them. And it's not just the ones that were killed, it's the ones that were attempted. And now they're disfigured. And we treat them like they're just and this is part of the political landscape of Lebanon. They have to accept the rules that you may lose your limbs. You may, the cost, the real fear for not trying this again is severe. And this is why I think 
the reformers today are very eloquent in talking about corruption and sectarianism and institutional reform in a way that is best understood by a European Union ambassador. Uh, it's the language of accession talks. It's almost like Lebanon is the most screwed up European country applying for European Union membership. And these are the steps needed to become part of the EU. I mean, that would be great if the political climate was that way, but it's not. So unwilling, unwilling to accept Iran's role in Lebanon or unwilling to explain it or unwilling to look at it for what it is and more willing to engage Hezbollah, to push them to reform, to talk to Iran, to make energy deals with Iran that hopefully get them to adjust their behavior, or to be overly excited about a nuclear deal that hasn't happened, but may happen. That's, I think, where this group lives, that they, they just simply don't want to go down a road of strategic uh, concern. And maybe that's not their job, because these are European, these are primarily Western diplomats in Lebanon that can talk about banking sector reform, they can talk about corruption and, and uh, thievery, and they can hit hard on the banking sector every day if they want to. But rarely do they actually express security problems for what they are. There are a few exceptions. I mean, there are a few, and I don't want to name names here, even though they've all contributed to this article. Um, and it's not about Ralph Tadraf, on the contrary. He's one of many ambassadors in this country that I think uh, sees things this way. Maybe he's a little more uh, persistent in seeing things this way. But um, no, this is, a, this is a real disagreement. Now, if it's not their role, they're communicating all the time to their capitals. He communicates to Brussels. Uh, Andreas Kindle communicates to Berlin. The Austrian ambassador to Vienna and so on. I mean, the Slovak ambassador even uh, is now tweeting about banking sector reform. He communicates to Bratislava, fine. So you have all these capitals that are listening to their ambassadors. The ambassadors, I think, need to hear that our, our leverage is robbed. We have, no un, we have no way of getting Iran out. We have no way of preventing ammonium nitrate from being parked here. You put the best president in Lebanon tomorrow. Ammonium nitrate, you, you put the best president, you put the most talented president in the last six years. In Baabda, that ship would have been parked in the port. And that president would be out of Baabda had they tried anything against that ship. That's fact. Can't uh, escape this. But you put tomorrow an IMF-oriented uh, president. You put uh, an economist. Let's say you put Jihad Azor. Or, or you put uh, a civil society champion, probably the most well-respected civil society uh, member in this country. Even when he's dabbled in politics, he's remained sort of, uh, his reputation is outstanding, as Ziad Barut. You put people like this in, uh, in, in Baabda, and then you put, let's say, I don't know, an economist, a World Bank, a former World Bank economist like Amr Psat. You put someone like that in the Sarai, you get an IMF and a World Bank uh, former, uh, you get economists in. I think 
you get Jamila say as a speaker as well. You're going back to October 16, 2019. And I think this is what Hezbollah wants. And that should not be the goal of what these ambassadors want. Hezbollah wants a paralyzed state that ignores its security concerns, lets it dictate peace and war. Uh, it kills whenever anyone crosses a security line they've established, a sub-state security line, not a Lebanese line, a Hezbollah line, an Iran Dominion line. They want Lebanese to accept this. You just have to take it. That people get killed in this country for challenging them politically. Their politics is security, it's not theocracy. They want Lebanese to abide by the terms, and they want, I think, everyone to accept this. So October 16 means fairly legitimate names entering the halls of power. Michel Aoun was a far more legitimate heavyweight years back when it comes to Christian influence in the country. He was their preferred president. And he became president because this man shifted from being a staunch anti-Syria anti-Hezbollah critic in Paris to becoming their best friend in Baghdad. You can't have Michel on again. Maybe Gibran Bessir is just too toxic right now. They'll, I think, offer a gift, a settlement deal, a civil society guy, or girl, but I think it's going to be a guy, who, uh, just ignores them, but does some of that rough change, that rigid change, that let's just secure an IMF deal and have a lifeline so that paralysis is no longer collapse, it's just paralysis. That's a failure, I think, for Lebanon. That's a failure for diplomats because they've misread the room. And I promised a short episode, so I'll keep this uh, clean and, and neat. I'll wrap it up with, I'll circle back to something that I said earlier. Uh, I think reformers need to uh, appeal to anyone that has leverage with Iran that we don't have leverage over this problem. This leverage is a crippling burden on reform. We don't want any country to worry about us. We don't want to be a headache to any country. That includes Iran. We don't want to be a problem for Iran if Iran leaves. When Iran leaves, it's not that Hezbollah leaves, it's not that Hezbollah is over. No, Hezbollah turns into a political party without weapons, period. No more bullshit propaganda 22 years after the Israelis withdrew. None of that. No more bullshit about resistance because they've destroyed this word. They tainted this word. They tarnished this word. No, the Lebanese state is given full control. It's not denied control by Hezbollah and then blamed by Hezbollah for being too weak to defend Lebanon. This bullshit is over. But that's the path. Hezbollah goes down that road. Not a disarmament that is bloody and civil war-like. You don't want that. You want a peaceful way out for Iran. Now, that does not mean Iran's regime changing, or that does not mean Iran's security has to completely change either. 
It just means that the machine that is based in this country that has caused such a big headache for Lebanese and Iran too, money drain. It's what protesters in Iran protest about regularly too. And it's been accused now for killing the aspirations of two national movements in recent history. March 14 and October 17. Two movements killed by one proxy army. Assassinations in March 14, one assassination for October 17, but more than that, severe intimidation and political stranglehold and a chokehold on reform and real collapse where we are right now. You want them to reform, you want them to move forward. Okay, so that's, that's the goal, it's to get Iran to reconsider its geography reconsider really what it wants from Lebanon. This is a group that cannot fight Israel anymore. They fight Israel from Lebanon, they will be destroyed by Israel and Lebanon as well. And at the end of the day, this proxy army doesn't want a collapsed state. They don't want a Lebanon that is completely broken the way it is right now. They want a functioning but paralyzed state. And this is really the one foot in, one foot out scenario they used to have. I don't think Hezbollah wants to micromanage anything in this country. But we want them to turn into a Lebanese party only, that only thinks about Lebanese concerns, not about Iran's military needs, or not about Iranian regime survivability. We don't want that. So, that has to be expressed by reformers. Reformers can't go over and over about why we're so stuck with sectarianism and why certain individuals are so corrupt and blaming everything on a central bank governor and then pitching the idea that sovereignty and neutrality are a right-wing Christian cause. This is absolutely silly. It's not a patriarchal cause. It's not ba it's not Kirke. Uh, no, this is a Lebanese cause. But you don't want Samir Jaja or the patriarch to be the ones speaking about this. You want this to be a national cause. So, if civil society claims to be a national movement, that doesn't make sense. If their political ambitions are national, not local, not sectarian, and not uh, whatever, then yeah, make it their cause, but not in a way that's stupid. You can't just talk about it and say we want sovereignty and independence. No, offer policy. So this is the policy. Every diplomat in this country should communicate to their capitals. Through reformers. Reformers should be saying this over and over and over and over and over. We lost diplomacy with Iran. We cannot communicate with Iran. Your respective capitals seem to want to negotiate all the time with Iran. All the time. Paris wants energy deals. America wants a nuclear deal. Uh, some countries don't talk to Iran, but as an EU collective, the majority can. And rather than honing in on collateral damage responsibility in this country and blaming the collateral for being collateral, meaning chasing the pathetic politicians that have survived decades in this country because of the proxy and because of the Assad regime, chasing them and making sure that they do better. I mean, this, is, this is an absolutely lost cause. No, go to the source. And those capitals should go to the source. Every time they talk to Iran, they should bring this up. 
Now, how do we become leveraged? I, that, that's a question I don't know the answer to. Meaning, what does Iran get from this? Uh, what do they get? And why, why should we matter in this conversation? I mean, why should Rob Malley discuss Lebanon and Vienna? I mean, it seems like even with protests in Iran, they're still willing to go down the nuclear path deal. So this could happen still. Why should they talk about Lebanon? This is, I think, a valid question. And there's no valid answer that comes to mind immediately. There's maybe, it's more that if the Lebanese are not speaking this language, no one will. And if Lebanese aspirations on the ground coalesce around a political diplomatic cause to get the security out of this country once and for all, then maybe you could at least begin with the idea of Hezbollah is a problem for everybody. Hezbollah is a problem for Iran. Hezbollah is a problem for Lebanon. And maybe there's a peaceful way out of this mess because otherwise the end result is going to be a very bloody catastrophe. Lebanon will not simply collapse into oblivion. I mean, politicians are already speaking this language of partition, divorce, robbing Hezbollah of state leverage. This will not happen peacefully. And we don't want 1975 to happen again. But if that happens, Hezbollah loses. This group cannot survive a civil war. And I think as much as they try to sugarcoat the idea of divorce, which in itself sounds stupid, um, there's no peaceful divorce in Lebanon. There's peaceful divorce in Czechoslovakia, post-89 and Velvet Revolution and friendly terms being discussed and mutual understanding, mutual assurance. There's no, uh, there's no peaceful divorce in Lebanon. That's, uh, I mean, if civil war happened because of multiple militia, uh, divorce will happen because of a bloodbath that confronts Hezbollah's leverage. Hezbollah needs a Lebanese state. Hezbollah doesn't want collapse, it wants paralysis. So maybe that's the guarantee. You avoid the bloody end, which could happen. I mean, that's a real scenario. And you're also rethinking that it's this Syrians will have to rise up against the Syrian regime. Lebanese cannot ask for an end to Iran's involvement in Syria. Iraqis will have to deal with Iraq. Lebanese, even when they feel that these are similar paths being taken, and there's many sort of mirror images sometimes of these, like uh, many sometimes, there are images sometimes of Lebanese protesters and Iraqi protesters both chanting against Iran. Iraqis have to dictate the future of Iraq. Yemen, this is a Yemeni issue, even when Saudi Arabia's leverage is far bigger there, Yemenis will have to figure, it, figure out the future of Yemen. Lebanese have to figure out the future of Lebanon, too. And I think Lebanon is the only concern we have. We can't predict or we can't even wish for change in other countries. We can stand up and believe that that's a cause that's admired and, and always defend fundamental principles in any society. But uh, when it comes to political process, I think uh, we can only look at Lebanon. 
and look for solutions for Lebanon. And whether Iran moves its machinery out of this country and keeps it in others, this is something for other countries and other societies to worry about. Lebanese can only worry about Lebanon. But reformers have to make diplomacy their cause. Diaspora has to make this their cause too. I mean, Lebanese abroad have to push this forward that Lebanon is not a failed state because Lebanese are failures. We need leverage with Iran. We need an opening to Iran. Otherwise, nothing will happen. Otherwise, we will simply just, <clears throat> nothing good will happen. It will, it will, it will end in a, in a very bad scenario. I think in that kind of climate, you also end up with curious things emerging, like track to diplomacy. I mean, certain countries turn this into peace movement, peace processes. Whether they succeed or not is something else. But I mean, track to diplomacy, where Iranian ex-officials and maybe Lebanese civil society members or even ex-officials or whatever, point is not hijacked individuals or regime picks. It's more an exploration. Maybe these people should meet in friendly places and flush out what it would take for there to be a peaceful way forward for all parties involved. That, I think, is the mission for European Union states to best understand their old security concerns with the Soviet Union and the Iron Wall, um, I mean, they're, they understand that terrain quite well, actually. They're the best at understanding that terrain. They lived through it. They were punished for it. And now they're breathing because it's gone. I think they're the ones that should be advocating this for Lebanon, not, uh, not chasing around... Uh, more academic-like uh, analysis of a country that, when they write about it, seems more like Portugal or Ireland or Venezuela sometimes, maybe, or Argentina uh, at, at most, but more like a European country that failed because of corruption, uh, Greece and, and these kinds of economic uh, experiences without addressing the bigger problem that has destroyed this country. So that's my take, and I, I know a lot of these ambassadors and uh, diplomats and UN representatives and the like listen to this podcast rather than uh, endlessly debating with them on uh, WhatsApp or meeting them in private and trying to flush things out. Um, I thought I'd make this an open episode. And hopefully something like this takes off. Because um, I've had enough of these conversations with all types where they're excusing Hezbollah and making it seem like it's just one bystander to a proxy conflict between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And that if they were just pushed to reform a bit, they would. I mean, the the... The lunacy of that kind of discourse, I think. Uh, maybe it's okay in a classroom setting, political science course at, at most, uh, 
maybe, and you can invite uh, opinions and, and debate, but it's not, I don't think it's worthy of diplomacy. It's not worthy of diplomatic protocols. Thank you.